everyone has a creed. And I simply, and I don't simply mean that lots of people have a creed, and so because a lot of people do, I can make a broad sweeping generality. That's not what I mean. I mean literally, and I mean literally in the correct use of the word literally. Literally, everyone has a creed. Every single person has a creed. Everyone has a set of beliefs that determines and drives how they think, how they feel, and how they live. And you might be thinking, well, Clint, what about atheists, right? Don't they, they have no creed? Or what about agnostics? Or what about those who are now de defined as the religious nuns? They don't even want a label anymore. What about human secularists who believe that you can be good without God? Don't they, aren't they like outside of this creedal faith? But even them, even they have creeds. In fact, if you actually read their books and read their blogs, they will tell you the exact same thing. I'm not, I'm not putting something on them that they themselves don't also suggest. David Brooks in his New York Times article, Building Better Secularists, he wrote this. As secularism has become more prominent and self-confident, its spokesmen have insistently argued that secularism should not be seen as an absence, as a lack of faith, but rather as a positive moral creed. Andrew Sullivan, who writes over at the New York Magazine in his December article, America's New Religions, wrote this, everyone has a religion. It is in fact impossible not to have a religion if you are a human being. It's in our genes, and it's expressed itself in every culture, in every age, including our own secularized husk of a society. Everyone has a way of life that gives meaning, a meaning that cannot really be defended without recourse to some transcendent value, some underlying truth, God or gods. See, friends, even an atheist denial of God is just as absolute as a Christian's faith in God. It's, it's making a truth statement, and therefore it is, by definition, a creed. And both belief statements come with a set of values to live by. There's implications for what we believe. So for Christians, we appeal to God in the Bible. That's where we derive our source of what ultimately matters and how we're supposed to live. Secularists and religious nuns, they build their creeds in their morality, on their own individual reason, individual choice, and their own individual responsibility. Its individuality does not negate the reality of a system. They have a system, a pattern of belief to determine how they're going to make moral decisions, value decisions, uh, the, the, where they live. Everything is driven by what they believe. You see, human beings are a creedal people because we desire we reason and we act, and therefore we can't help but put together some kind of pattern to help govern the everyday decisions that we make on a daily basis. We have to have a pattern to help guide our thoughts, to help guide our feelings and our actions. So if everyone has a creed, what is the Christian's creed? Like what do Christians actually believe? And so that brings us to this new series that we're calling We Believe. 
And we're going to take the next 16 weeks to walk through line by line the Apostles' Creed, which provides a helpful summary of the basic beliefs of Christianity. And as Kevin said earlier, it's not scripture, but it is a distillation of scripture. In fact, the Bible has somewhere around 800,000 words, which is kind of daunting if you think about capturing all of those and trying to understand how they all fit together. Creeds or systems of belief help us put it all together in a helpful summary form. What the creed does is it kind of boils down the Bible into its most important essential component parts. It's a lean summary of the fundamentals of what Christians believe. It's not everything, but it's some of the fundamentals, some of the most important things. What I love about the creed is that it will help also give us a vocabulary of faith in an age where we've kind of lost Christian fluency. And so a lot of these words that we're going to look at even seem foreign to us. And so we'll be able to unpack those biblical words. It also connects us with the historical roots of our faith. Do you know that the basic words and form of the creed go back all the way to the second century? It's historically been used as a means of education. It was used to help uh, early believers in the faith know exactly what it was that they were stepping into. It was an education tool, but it was also used sacramentally, which means in worship. It was, it was used to confess who God is as we worship our great God and Savior. And so today we're going to look at the first two words of the creed, which says, I believe. And everything that comes after it is kind of the content of that belief. But I wanted to, to stop right there so that we could look at what does it actually mean to say, I believe. What do those words mean? In fact, the very word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which just simply means I believe. So what is it? What does it actually mean to believe? Is it purely an intellectual assent? Is it merely an exercise of the mind? Is it just having some simple agreement with no implications on points of doctrine? But as we're going to find out, belief in the Bible is never just limited to our mind. In fact, belief involves our whole being, the head, the heart, and the hands. It's always an intellectual, an emotional, and a volitional response to the gospel. So when I say the gospel, what do I mean by that? Well, the gospel is the good news that God in Christ extends an invitation to us to know him, to love him, and to follow him. And in doing so, he gives us exactly what we need, forgiveness and acceptance, worth and approval, newness and healing, purpose and meaning, joy and hope, peace and freedom, or another way to say it is abundant life. You need it. I need it, your family needs it, your neighbors need it, everybody needs those things that I just mentioned, and everybody is trying to seek to find those things in one way or another. And God's gracious invitation to give us everything we need, which is precisely the things we lack, it demands a response, right? An invitation demands a response. When you're invited to something, there's a lingering like note that needs to be resolved. I've invited you Will you come? Will you receive? Will you accept the invitation? It demands a response. And if you read throughout the Bible, you'll see that there are three terms that are used over and over again to highlight this multidimensional response to God. There's one response, but it has multiple aspects to it. 
And I'll unpack that for us this morning. Here are those three terms I want us to really hold on to when we think about what it means to believe. Here they are. Repent, believe, and turn. Those three words are used all throughout the scripture to describe this multidimensional, this trifold response to that loving invitation of God. Think about it like a chain reaction. It's, it's one thing that's happening, but it has multiple steps involved. So repenting, believing, and turning is this chain reaction of our full and proper response to God. And so let's look together at the scriptures and try to unpack this together to understand what when we say, I believe, as we're going to do over the next 15 weeks, we know exactly what we're talking about. So let's look at the first word, repent. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, provides a helpful definition for repentance. Paul says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's our first word. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, since we're jumping into the middle of, of, of Paul's letter, let me help, help summarize what's happened so far. Paul spent the first chapter detailing how everybody, to one degree or another, has participated in sin, has, 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 has committed acts of unrighteousness. He says everybody has acted unjustly, everybody has acted sinfully, everybody at various points and continuing points in their life lives according to their own desires, they live, they do what is right in their own eyes, they create a standard of their own and has failed to acknowledge God as the one who alone is able to give us the standard for living. He's saying it's universal. Everybody has done it. In fact, people that you interact with on a daily basis may not use this language here, the language of the Bible, but you've hardly met a person. I, I would go so far as to say you probably never met a single person who wouldn't admit to some form of moral wrongdoing, right? Everybody, even if they never say, like, I was wrong, will admit to have not living a perfectly perfect life. Everyone intuitively knows that they have guilt on their hands. And at this point in his letter, Paul turns the conversation to the Jewish Christians reading his letter because he wants to make sure that they don't think that they're excluded from this universal sweep of sin. It can be easy as insiders, right? These are Jewish Christians who've had the scriptures for a long time to think, yeah, yeah, Paul, you're talking about those people out there. And Paul says, yeah, I am talking about those people out there, but don't mistake me, I'm also talking about you. When I said it was universal, I meant you too. There's actually no us and them. It's everybody. He says, by the way, I'm not just talking about the Gentiles, I'm talking about you. You are actually going to be subject to the same kind of judgment as them. And then he says, but are you, so if you don't think that's true, are you just presuming upon God's kindness and his patience? He's saying, is your hope for forgiveness that God will just kind of overlook your sins and kind of go, hey man, you're my, you're, you're, you guys are my, my people. I'm not gonna really uh, look closely at your case file. I'm just gonna give you a pass on that. Is your plan for escaping judgment that God is gonna pull some kind of favor for you? Paul says, hey, that's a bad plan. Don't put your hope and your security in that. What he does say is that God's kindness, his patience is actually meant 
to uh, lead us to repentance, not presumption. He's saying when you look at the fact that God has withheld his judgment, it's actually meant for you to go, man, he's been super gracious and generous. I should probably acknowledge that. I shouldn't just presume upon him. Now, when we come to that word repentance, it's, it's a Greek word, metanoia, and it literally means to change your mind. And so we're getting at this first imp- implication of what it means to believe. Paul's argument is this. When we consider how kind and gracious God has been, that should lead us to seek his forgiveness. See, the reality is he's willing to forgive, but we have to acknowledge our need for it, right? Have you ever been in a, in a, in a relationship or in this conflict where you were just willing to say, I forgive you? You were just waiting for them to acknowledge, hey, you've actually done something wrong, right? And the impasse wasn't your hardness of heart to give forgiveness. It was theirs for not acknowledging that there was a need for that forgiveness. And what Paul is saying is you have to change your mind. But he also connects it to our heart. See, for in the Bible, the mind and the heart are are intimately connected. So there's got to be this, this change involved for us to come to a place where we go, no, no, I need him. See, if you never change your mind about what you need, you'll never ask for it. And sometimes the simple block is that we have a hardened heart. We just simply don't want to change. Anybody, anybody in here ever felt that hardness of heart in your own heart where you just said, I just, like, I have my heels dug in. Maybe it's about God. Maybe it's about something else. But you just, you know what it feels like to have your heels dug in and saying, I am not moving on this. Am I the only one who has a stubborn and hard heart sometimes? We don't want to see that we have sin that needs to be addressed. And what Paul is saying is the first step in accepting God's gracious invitation is to change your mind about your sin and your need. See, if you think you've just been kind of bad and all you really need is just a little boost, right? Like you've done, you've climbed up the wall and you're, you're just short of that last ring. What you just need is someone to come underneath you, give your foot, just, you just need a little boost, then you'll be able to climb over the wall. If that's what you think, then Paul says you've completely missed it. Everyone has actually stored up wrath for them for the day of judgment. And Paul says, it's coming. Now, when we use that word judgment, we immediately cringe because it's one of those words in our culture that we hate. People think that if you speak judgment, it's, it's an act of cruelty and meanness. But I'd like to suppo- or, or suggest to you that it's, in fact, the opposite because the truth is judgment is coming. And if it's coming, the most loving thing I could do is to tell you that it's coming so you're not blindsided by it. I love this, from atheist Penn Gillette. He's from that illusionist duo, Penn and Teller, if you've seen them. They're incredible. I can never figure out what exactly um, they're doing. And he said this in a, in a pretty um, emotionally raw YouTube video several years ago. It was filmed right after a show, and he had this interaction with a Christian who was kind and gentle and just said, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe uh, the Bible is true. And he shared his faith with him. And then After the show, he, like with an iPhone, just recorded himself saying these words. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? 
How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? He goes on to say, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I will tackle you. And this is more important than that. that those are powerful words. Now, he doesn't believe any of it. He thinks it's all silly and nonsense. But he's saying if, if Christianity is really true, there really is a truck headed down barreling on me, and I've got my, my, my noise-canceling headphones on. I don't see it coming, and you do. He says the most loving thing you could do at some point is shout and scream, but at some point, if they won't hear you, is tackle them. Get them out of the way of the bus. Every single one of you in here would do that if that was happening right there on Main Street, right? And Penn is saying that's, that's what Christians believe. And so for Paul to speak about the coming judgment isn't hostility it's not meanness he's saying look there's a bus coming and it's going to hit you i want you to know so we don't escape our day in court by pretending it's not coming right we escape by recognizing that our judge got out of his seat took off his judicial robes and sat in the judgment seat for ourselves this act of ultimate kindness is meant to soften our hearts to realize that the, the judge says, I will take your punishment for you. And all we have to do is ask for forgiveness. And Paul says repentance, the first step, is changing your mind about what you fundamentally, fundamentally believe is true. And that involves coming to grips with the seriousness of our sin. We like to make light of it, but it's destructive. We have to be uh, true about the consequences of our actions, about our need for grace and forgiveness. See, when repentance has truly taken place, the sin that once delighted us is now seen for what it truly is, death itself. And at the same time, when, we, when repentance has taken place, the grace and forgiveness of God, which used to seem like some helpful addition that we needed, is now seen as your only hope. We have to be open to changing our minds with what we've thought about God and our own relationship with him. Repentance means changing how we relate and respond to God because for the first time, we're seeing ourselves for who we really are and we're also seeing God for who he really is. While it begins in the mind, repentance is also about the heart because it affects our desires. That's why Paul says sometimes we have impenitent hearts, which means just unrepentant, just stuff stubborn hardened hearts there's overlap in these terms and repentance in the mind can never happen without repentance in the heart you have to be willing to change you can't have one without the other the focus of repentance is changing and that and paul's saying that's the first step so internally when we come to a place of repentance we are open to changing how we think changing how we feel about who god is and repentance highlights this disposition of the heart to have a willingness to see God's truth, his goodness, and his beauty. So repentance is this willingness to change. So after repentance, the next word is believe. Look with me at Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commands shall live by them. Okay, let's stop right there. Paul reminds them, that if, and it's a big if, if someone were able to perfectly keep the law, that they would achieve a righteousness on their own. 
So he's saying if you were able to follow everything perfectly, you you would essentially have have accrued righteousness. But we all know that no one is able to live perfectly up to God's standard. I mean, think about it this way. Even if you reject God's standard, you have a standard for your own way of living, don't you? Everyone has some kind of standard, and everyone will admit that they've often failed to live up to their own standard, right? We're just not able to keep things perfectly. So what Paul is doing, he's setting up his argument to say, if this isn't how we find life, by accruing righteousness for ourselves, then how do we find it? If it's not a righteousness based on my works, then how will I ever become righteous? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says this, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's basically saying is righteousness does not come through our works. So he says we don't have to ask who will achieve and live perfectly to ascend God's holy hill to be able to bring God down to us. That's what he's saying, who's going to ascend to bring Christ down. That's essentially saying who's going to live perfectly moral to achieve it for themselves. And he's saying nobody can do that. No one's going to be able to live this perfect life and climb up the ladder of righteousness to bring a Messiah down to the rest of us. And then he says, nobody has to descend into the abyss either. No one has to perform penance and acts of punishment and to pay their time and earn it that way. You see, there's kind of two ways you can think about earning salvation. You can think about, well, I'll just do it perfectly and earn it, or I'll just take my lacks, right? I'll take my lashes, and so I'll have paid my time. And Paul's saying that's not the way to go about it. You don't have to work up, and you don't have to work down. Paul says you don't have to go high or low because the word Jesus Christ has been brought near to you. In fact, all the work has been done for you. God sent him down because you and I could never climb the ladder of righteousness of our own good works. And God has also raised him from the dead so that you would never have to suffer the judgment for your sins. See, the good news of the gospel is that God has brought Jesus, our Messiah, to us. We didn't have to go looking for him. In fact, you weren't looking for him. I wasn't looking for him. He brought him near to us. And so what God requires is not works, but faith. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Look look at this verse. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says that we confess with our mouth. This is an outward expression of an inward reality. See, belief begins in the heart, and we confess it with our mouths. So what is that inward reality? It's that the heart, this core central of your soul, has deeply put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, belief is not merely uh, some doctrinal statement that sometime, a long time ago, someone named Jesus 
died and perhaps somehow God raised him from the dead. Belief is not uh, assent to some kind of abstract truth claim about whether or not a historical person died 2,000 years ago. When we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we're saying is we see that Jesus' death was a substitutionary, sacrificial, penalty-paying kind of death. He wasn't merely in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's been inspiring to us to see this nice guy who lived a good life, and that gives me some kind of moral motivation to do better in my life. That is not what Christians believe. We believe that Jesus intentionally came down from heaven, took on flesh, became one of us, lived a life we couldn't live, and died the death that we should have died, and that he stood in our place. He wasn't a victim of some hate crime. He intentionally knew what he was doing. He stepped down to come be in our place so that we didn't have to uh, bring him down ourselves or pay the cost ourselves. He didn't deserve to die, but he was willing to die for us. Belief in Jesus means that we believe his life, death, and resurrection actually answer life's greatest questions and serves our deepest longings and problems. Earlier I said everybody is seeking acceptance, hope, and intimacy and approval. Everybody knows that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and there's this longing inside all of us that it would be made right, that we would be approved, not based on what we've done, but just on who we are. Everybody wants to be fully known and truly loved. To have faith, to believe, is not merely some intellectual exercise. It is a deep an abiding trust in the core of your being. In fact, the Bible gives us a really good definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The writer says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What he's saying is that faith is a hopeful assurance and a trusting conviction that goes beyond some mere moment. It's an ongoing reliance on God. So let me try to illustrate what I mean by this deep trust. There was this famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin um, who did some incredible tightrope acts uh, at these tremendously scary heights all throughout Paris. And word about him kind of spread and uh, that he could could go across the the, the line with a pole, without a pole, blindfolded, juggling. I mean, he'd go up there sometimes and make himself a sandwich and eat out on this tightrope while he could easily fall to his death. And an American promoter heard about this and uh, in the papers, and so he wrote a letter to Charles Blondin, and he said, hey, for a very large and substantial amount of money, I would like to challenge you to do your act over Niagara Falls. So Blondin wrote back, sir, although I've never been to America and seen the falls, I'd love to come. And so after months of promotion and hype, many people came out to see the event. And this is a historical true uh, thing that happened. Now, Blondin started on the Canadian side, and he made his way across. And just to show that he knew what he was doing, he did it blindfolded. It's incredible. And the crowds went wild. And after he came back on the other side, Charles Blondin came to the promoter and said, Mr. Promoter, do you believe now that I can do it? And the promoter said, well, of course I do. I I just saw you do it. What kind of question is that? No, Blondin said, do you really believe that I can do it? He says, of course I do. You just did it. No, 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 said Charles Blondin. Do you believe I can do it? Exasperated, he said, yes, I believe you can do it. 
Well, good, said Blondin. And he pulled a blanket off a wheelbarrow, looked at the promoter and said, now get in the wheelbarrow. Trust is getting in the wheelbarrow, right? At some point, it's not a mental exercise anymore. It's not, I, I think you can do it. I know I've seen you do it. It's saying, I'm going all in that you literally can do it. Faith is not merely intellectual. It requires all of you. It counts the cost and says, I'm all in. If repentance focused on change and highlighted kind of this intellectual component of, uh, of what it means to respond to God truly, faith focuses on trust and highlights the emotional. Now, by emotional, I don't mean sentimental or dramatic. I don't mean emojis. I mean that internal, central core where our desires and our trust lives. That's what I mean, That's like the, the Greek pathos, this, this emotional core of who we are, the feeling center, our hearts. Emotional here re- refers to the attitudes and postures of your heart. And what makes faith and trust hard for some of us is that our ability to trust has been broken, right? Think about those um, rocky shorelines where the waves crash on it for centuries, right? Each day, crash, crash on that rocky shoreline. And what happens? Over time, there's erosion, right? The, the, it starts to change the very face of the shoreline. It changes the landscape. And that happens to us. See, when our trust is broken over and over in our life, it changes us. And it makes it hard for us to be vulnerable and give something as valuable as our trust to someone. Because we know we give our trust to someone, we've, we've become vulnerable and therefore we can be hurt. Trust requires courage. It requires determination. It requires a giving up of control. And that's why we're so averse to doing it. Because we know that giving up our trust, getting in the wheelbarrow can be costly. And we've learned enough to know through years of eroded trust that we're not supposed to give it out that easily. See, we're much more uh, a fan of self-preservation than we are of giving out our trust. But see, self-preservation means that we don't, uh, means that we, demands that we don't give out our trust without good reason. Family, listen to me. We will never have faith in God if self-preservation is our highest goal. Let me suggest to you that ultimately, Everyone in this room and everyone you've ever met is trusting in something or someone to give their life direction, meaning, and purpose. We may do well to hide it, but, but ask the right questions, have enough time, and you will find out who or what every single person you know is putting their trust in. Maybe you're looking to other religions Maybe you've just said, you know what, I'm just going to define it all for myself to give my life meaning. Whatever it is, you already are trusting in something. You already have faith in something. The question isn't if you are a person of faith. The question is, who or what is your faith in? Paul says, here's where my faith is in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Faith is putting our trust in Christ, embracing him as our only 
hope and making a determined decision of the will to say, with Christ, I have everything. Without him, I have nothing. Alistair McGrath in his book on the Apostles' Creed says this, faith is like an anchor linking us to the object of our faith. Just like an anchor secures a ship to the ocean floor, so our faith links us securely with God. That's faith, linking ourselves to something secure. Repentance is about changing our minds. Faith is about placing our trust in the Lord Jesus. I like the way Daryl Bach says it. He says, faith is the intersection of repentance and turning where mind and action unite. So now with that intersection, let's look at what it means to turn to God. First Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 says this. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In this section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's encouraging the church, and in doing so, he describes their conversion to Christianity. And the way he chooses to describe it, he says that you turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God. You see, they had turned from placing their hope and appeasing these fickle Greco-Roman gods of the pantheon. They turned from that and put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who defeated death and believers from the wrath to come. See, if repentance highlights this change in our minds with a focus on our intellectual belief and faith highlights this change in our hearts to trust God with a focus on our emotional belief, turning then highlights a change of direction with the focus on our volitional belief. Volitional just means desires of the will. See, turning, uh, belief never stays internal. It's not something that happens just on the inside. Belief, true belief, True response to God makes its way out. It becomes external. It starts to change things. And as truth becomes real to you intellectually, and as the love of God changes your desires, now the wisdom of God starts to direct how you live your life. And then you begin to actually change. And that's usually when people start to notice a difference in your life. Right? When you become a Christian, they might, you, you have these beliefs and you've changed your mind, but, but your life is still uh, looks a lot like it did before. But slowly, over time, people start to say, hey, I've noticed some things changing in you. At that point, you can, you've really turned. Like There's the direction of your life, and the actions have actually changed. You become responsive to God's direction, and you no longer travel down the same road as before. As you turn to God, you realize serving worthless and lifeless gods leads to a life of worthlessness and lifelessness. You start to see that the way that you were living no longer leads to the life that you would like to have. G.K. Beale says it brilliantly um, in his book, We Become What We Worship. And he says this. This is his whole thesis of the book. We become what we worship, either for our ruin or our restoration. Let me say that again. We become what we worship, either for our ruin or our restoration. What he's saying is, if you continue to worship the idols of our day, career, success, fame, power, sex, money, relationships, volunteerism, anything, literally anything can become an idol. If if you love anything more than you love God, you have actually just created an idol. But when you worship the creation more than the creator, it starts to ruin you. You become lifeless like the thing itself. We become lifeless just like the things we worship. 
But Paul's saying when you turn and serve and worship the living God, guess what happens? You become living like he is living. We become alive. Why? Because he is alive. God is life itself, and we become like him, and it leads to our restoration. See, you can't have both. We will either turn to God exclusively or not at all. You cannot have both. God does not fit into your pantheon of gods. He's too big to fit in temples made by hands. You can't add him to what you've already got going on. It's an exclusive thing. God says you will worship me or not at all. You can't add me to the list. See, we like to often think of ourselves as neutral when it comes to approaching questions of faith. But the reality is we are deeply committed to ourselves and our way of life because it's a matter of our will and our desires. That's what volitional means. Now, you may be saying that sounds a lot like um, uh, you may be saying that sounds a lot like what we've been saying, and the answer is yes. All of this intersects together. Repentance, belief, and turning, it's, it's multidimensional, and it's also interconnected. You can't have one without the other. But this aspect of turning gets at our faith and our true belief becoming external. It's working out this, this internal reality of repenting and believing. And when it comes to the surface, that's what turning is. But turning and changing direction takes effort, right? It takes a whole lot of effort to stop the engine of your life and the inertia and actually change directions. Because see, the freight of our life and the momentum of our energy is no small thing. The inertia of it all makes turning around exceedingly difficult. Think about a, a, a big train. It, it, it can't just make a hard right and turn, right? It's got it's to have time to, to do that. To change direction requires a ton of energy an effort. See, many have casually said, I want to believe. It all sounds great. I don't really have intellectual objections. I even sort of kind of believe some of the things that you're saying. But when it comes to this aspect, changing their life, making new decisions, following him, that's often where the rubber meets the road. And we say, well, I don't know about that. But that right there that hesitation to follow him says you haven't truly repented and don't really fully believe. Jesus said it really plainly in John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's pretty simple. He's saying if you confess to love me, what comes with that love is an obedience to my command. And all of this creates this context for a relationship with God who desires uh, to have this intimate relationship with us. See, when we repent, believe, and turn, that's what it means to accept God's gracious invitation. And when that happens, we're welcomed into relationship with him, where we receive all of the benefits of that relationship. When we believe in God, there's a delight that comes with it, and it's characterized by love. R.C. Sproul said it this way, people of faith, set their hearts' affections on God. They pursue, they seek, they press into the kingdom. And those without true faith remain indifferent, aloof, and even hostile. Therefore, faith is more than just a persuasion of truth. Faith loves truth. Faith delights in Christ. Faith, true faith, loves to lift Christ in praise. See, this turning is a reorientation it's a changing of loyalty. It's a new direction. It's a transformation. It's obedience. And when you've turned to Christ, 
you enter into this relationship with him. So now that we've talked about each three of these terms, let me show you how they quickly all relate together. Like I said, this is not three aspects or three uh, responses to God. It's one response that has this multidimensional aspect. And so when we say, I believe, we're saying, I've repented, I've believed, and I've turned. I've changed my mind. I've embraced Jesus with my heart, and now I'm striving to live a life that's consistent with all that I believe. It's like a chain reaction, right? A chain reaction is the sequence of reactions where the product of one reaction leads to additional reactions. Think of dominoes lined up in a row, right? There's some videos on YouTube with like thousands upon thousands of dominoes and like it starts and you see this chain reaction. That's what we're talking about. When you repent, it starts this chain of reaction where you believe and if it's true, it leads to turning. You can't have one without the other. When you cross over from blind to sight, from dark to light, from death to light, the chain reaction begins and it affects you intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, and all of you gets in the wheelbarrow and says yes to Jesus. You repent of your sin, you put your trust in Christ, and you begin to start asking different questions like, how should I live? Now, of course, we're gonna grow in these throughout life. Repentance, belief, and, and turning looks different on day one of your faith as it does when you've been walking with Christ for years. We will continue to grow in depth and maturity in all of these aspects. We, in fact, we continue to respond daily to the Lord. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I'd appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He's saying, do this often. Continue to renew your mind. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But when one turns to the Lord, hear that word turning, the veil is removed. What was mystery is now sight. He says, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Both of these passages are highlighting that our life of Christ is one of progress and change. We are day by day becoming who God has created us to be. As we mature in our walk with Christ, the scope of our repentance will widen, our faith will grow deeper, and the practice of our faith will become more and more pure. Now, as we close, I want us to remember the very first word of the creed. We've talked about what it means to believe, but what about that little word at the very beginning, I? And you notice it wasn't we, it's I. Now, we may recite it together in worship, and we say it corporately, and we believe it's true, but at some point, you individually have to identify with the I of the statement. It's not enough to just say, I think together as a whole, we kind of get it. No, no, no. I believe. At some point, every one of us have to appropriate that I. We have to say, I am one of those who believe. So do you believe? Have you repented? Have you believed? Have you trusted? Have you turned to God? Have you said, this is what I believe to be good, true, and beautiful? 
J.I. Packer says, when I say I believe in God, I am professing my conviction that God has invited me into this commitment and declaring that I have accepted his invitation. When we say, I believe, we're saying, God, I receive your invitation. But if you haven't, why not? What is keeping you? Is it intellectual? Are there just some questions that you need answered, some doubts you have about the gospel? Whatever it is, we can talk. Honest questions deserve thoughtful answers. Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a a Pluralistic Society, said doubt is not autonomous. What he's saying is that our doubt can never remain alone. It can't stand alone. You literally can't doubt everything, right? Doubting one thing means you're placing your faith in something else. If you doubt Jesus and Christianity, then friends, let me tell you, you have your faith in something else. Have you ever considered doubting your doubts? Have you ever given real, actual thought in pursuit to the claims of Christ? What it, maybe your hindrance is emotional. Do you have wounds from the past that make it hard to trust? I get it. Everybody carries relational wounds and scarring, and perhaps some of those wounds were actually caused by Christians or even past experiences with religion. And that's no small thing, especially in greater Boston. But Seven Mile Road is a safe family. You can process your hurt. You can process your pain with people who really do care. This family has all kinds of problems, but one thing I love about Seven Mile Road is we are a people who care. There's no rush. God's call in your life is important, but th- so there's an urgency to it, but you're not gonna be pushed around or hurried. We will give you the gift of time. Maybe your hangup is volitional. You simply just don't want to change. You're all set. But let me ask you, are you really all set? Like, I know we get used to just saying it. It's a patterned response. You've learned to say it, but, but you're stuck. Whatever it is, whatever is holding you back today, let's at least be honest about what it is. And I would only ask that you consider what it is that you actually do believe. And does living that way lead to your ruin or your restoration? If you keep going down the path you're going, will you be restored or will you be ruined? Who or what are you trusting your life in? Maybe for some today, you're at a place now where you're ready to say, you know what, I didn't before, but now I believe. It's really simple. I would ask as we close out our time today that you would just pray and ask God to renew your mind to believe the gospel, that you would pray and ask God to give you a heart that trusts him and believes him, and that God would give you new desires to live a life where you will be led to restoration. And when you do that, you join your eye with the family of God.